You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a joy to see you all as we worship the Lord together. And let me invite you to turn to the Minor Prophet book of Malachi. If you are a guest or visitor here this morning, we have been working the last several weeks, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as we normally like to do here at Redemption Church, through this Minor Prophet book of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. And we are making our way towards its conclusion as we will look at Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. So I'll give you a moment to turn there, and I will read God's word for us. We'll pray, and then we'll see what the Lord will teach us this morning from his word. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered together as your church to worship you this morning. And Lord, as your word now lays open, as we have heard it read, Lord, we know that your word has been inspired by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that it is authoritative, that it is sufficient, that it is without error or fault, Lord, that it is a sure guide unto salvation. And so, Father, we pray that as we have your word open, and Lord, as I seek to proclaim it faithfully to your people, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will give us eyes to see, ears to hear the glories of Christ from Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. Lord, we pray that you would save, that you would build up your church, that you would renew us and strengthen us, all for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Here's a question. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Have you heard that question before? Chances are you've probably said it. Chances are you probably have wrestled with it late into the evening. It bothers us, doesn't it? It, it agitates us. It propels us to search for answers. We're not content leaving that question unresolved. And perhaps that question is on your mind more so than normal in our recent days. Maybe you look around at the state of our world today. Maybe you're watching the news. God help you, right? Maybe you're keeping up with politics. Maybe you're keeping a close eye on the stock market and you're looking around and you're asking that question, God, why do the righteous suffer? and Why do the wicked prosper? It's a question on your mind. In a lot of ways, it's the question asked by every generation. It's not a new question, is it? People have been asking that question for as long as people could ask questions. Every generation wonders with that perplexity of the prosperity of the wicked. I love the Bible. I hope you know that. All right, the Bible is God's book. It's God's word. As I prayed, it is true without any mixture of error. And one of the many reasons why I love the Bible is because it does not shy away from hard questions. It doesn't. In fact, surprisingly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the biblical authors actually raise those hard questions. Jeremiah inquired, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Job asks, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Asaph in the Psalms confesses, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, Malachi's generation wrestled with that same question. Like so many other authors in the Bible wrestle with that same question. If you are asking that question, why do the wicked prosper? You are not alone. The Bible itself raises that question and provides answers to that question. Perhaps you, like Israel, look around at the world today and you wonder, God, what are you up to? What are you doing in the world today? It seems like a mess, right? We're coming out of a pandemic. Everything seems up in chaos in so many ways. You look around the culture and you can think to yourself, maybe if you're honest with yourself, maybe you're really asking this question. You, you wrestle with, is there any value in following God today? Why follow after him? Why stand up and upon biblical truth? It's just going to make me a, a target for attack. Living in righteousness, living for the Lord, living in holiness, that's going to make me a person of ridicule in this generation. I may lose my, my family. I may lose my friends. If I, if I live for the Lord, I could lose my job, could lose my income. I may, like so many other believers in other countries, I may lose my life. I may lose my life. Is there any value in following God? See, Malachi's generation is asking that very question that you may be asking this morning. And God will answer this hard word that we raise against the Lord by reminding us that those who fear the Lord will one day experience triumphant joy at the rising of the Son of Righteousness. This is what God is instructing his people this morning. So here's the sermon summary. 
I know there are those of you obsessive about writing this down, so I'll give you a moment to write it down. Those who fear the Lord will bask in joyous triumph at the rising of the sun of righteousness. Isn't that good news? That those who fear the Lord will bask in joyous triumph at the rising of the sun of righteousness. As we look at this sixth disputation in Malachi, we're going to do so this morning in three parts. We're going to consider the question. Secondly, we'll consider the book. And thirdly, we'll consider the son. The question, the book, the son. That's going to be our structure this morning. Let's first consider the question. The question, is it vanity to serve God? Malachi has shown us You've been with us through this series. We have seen that Israel has been jaded and disillusioned with God. They, and this become increasingly a massive spiritual problem for God's people. That the the remnant has returned from captivity in Babylon. They have resettled now in Jerusalem. They have rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt the temple. But yet they're just a small little dinky province in the great Persian empire. Israel, in so many ways, was trapped, trapped in political impotence and economic poverty. They're not in a good situation. But yet they remembered, right? All the things the prophets had told them. The prophets had announced the coming prosperity and blessing that God would bring as he brings his people out of exile back into the land. They're expecting God to bring this sort of blessing. But now, several decades in, They're questioning everything. They're doubting everything. Does God really love us, they ask? Are we still his people? Where is the God of justice? Is it even worthwhile serving the Lord? Those are the questions we have seen throughout Malachi that Israel has raised. And these doubting questions have become those sorts of sharp accusations against God's character. And Israel's despair has produced a cold and religious routine where they are half-heartedly going through the motions of worshiping God. Israel's doubts have produced this despair, this cynicism, which has led to faithlessness when it comes to the covenant of God and his people. So if you've been with us, you know that Malachi is structured by six disputations. And this six disputation is before us today, and it mirrors the first disputation in Malachi. They're structured in parallel of each other. At the start of Malachi, if you were here, you remember, in fact, you can just flip over a page if you need a, a, a quick crash course. At the start of Malachi, the Lord announced, I have loved you. And Israel responds, how? <laughs> how, how have you loved us, Lord? And Israel, in this sixth disputation, is wrestling with a similar question, right? In fact, the, ex- the exact same question. Is it even worthwhile following God? Is it worthwhile obeying the covenant and doing what God has asked of us? Because not only are they questioning God's love for them, but we have seen throughout the book that they are beginning to blaspheme, wondering if, in fact, God actually delights, not in the righteous, but if God maybe delights in the wicked. In this sixth disputation, God states that Israel's words have been hard against him. Verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And so Israel responds, how, right? How have we spoken this hard word against you, God? What have we said? What have we done? And then the Lord tells them in verse 14 and 15, look at the text. 
Malachi 3, verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to test and they escape. Here's the question that they're asking. The hard word that they're saying, is following God even worthwhile? Is it even something I should be devoting myself towards? After all, the evil ones seem to be prospering. The arrogant seem blessed by God. Why does God cause them to flourish? God must approve of the wicked then. That's their reasoning. That's their thought. That's the hard word they're saying against the Lord. You see, as Israel experiences the hardship of their own generation, they feel so burned, so discouraged, so cynical that they are ready to throw in the towel. Who cares if I follow God? It's not doing me any good. Might as well join in with the wicked. They seem to be the ones that are being blessed. Why bother following God? What am I getting out of it? Why keep his word? Why walk in repentance and mourning? It doesn't seem to be doing us any good. God, what have you done for me lately? And it's interesting, right, that Israel is not questioning God's sovereignty here, are they? They acknowledge his authority and his ability to cause either prosperity or poverty. That's not the issue they're struggling with. They do wrestle, though, with God's purposes in his sovereignty. That's the rub. God, if you are in control and we believe you are, what are you doing? What are you doing? You see, oftentimes in your life, and maybe you're in that situation now, you wrestle with the purposes of God. As we look upon the world, as we see the state of our world, we know, we know, we believe it because the Bible says it, that nothing is outside of God's power or authority, that God is indeed sovereign, just as the scriptures say over the song of the chirping birds that you heard as you walked to your car this morning. He is sovereign over every stoplight that you encountered and car you passed as you drove to church. And yes, he is sovereign right now, keeping every heart in this room beating and alive and breathing. Right? God is doing that. He is sovereign. We believe that. But as Christians who confess and delight in God's control and rule over the cosmos, we can still find ourselves wondering, God, what are you up to? His ways are not our ways. And as we look at the evil in the world, we wonder why God sovereignly permits the free choices of evil men and women to prosper. Why does he do that? We can wonder often at the hidden purposes of God. While every Christian will at one time or another inquire, God, why do you allow the wicked to prosper? It's a dangerous thing to say, God, why do you delight in the wicked? Those are two very different questions. One, much safer than the other. Do you see the difference between them? One is a lament. The other is an attack. The former one is a question asked humbly by those who fear the Lord. The latter question is asked proudly by those who want to skewer the Lord with their accusations. Friends, be weary when your doubts have turned to spears and your questions have turned to daggers. Israel is finding themselves in that transition. God's sovereignty is purposeful. Even though from our limited perspective, sometimes we have a hard time understanding what God might be doing moment by moment. 
We know that the scriptures have told us the ends for which God is doing all things in his providential working. God is sovereignly working towards the purpose of the esteem of his name, his glory being exalted and triumphed. And even though the Bible gives us clarity about God's purpose and sovereignty in in the suffering, even in the prosperity of the wicked, sometimes we do have to rest in his infinite wisdom. That God, I am not you. I don't understand. My, my understanding is finite, but Lord, I trust in the goodness of your character as you act and work sovereignly for the glory of your name. You see, as you look at the prosperity of evildoers, don't make Israel's mistake that they seem to be making here in this question, right? Israel's making this confusing mistake of confusing material blessing with God's favor. That's the error they're making, Right? They're confusing that if you have stuff, then you must be blessed. And so they look at it, and the wicked may may prosper for a few decades. In fact, they might prosper for 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. Hey, maybe they'll make it to 100. Who knows? But yet, that prosperity is short-lived. Their wealth will quickly be turned to ruin at the dawn of eternity. As Israel is raising this hard question to the Lord, the Lord responds to this this question with the promise of his remembrance of those who fear him. And that leads, secondly, not from the question, now secondly we go to the book. God remembers those who fear him. He remembers those who fear him. Notice the contrast, right, to the shooting arrows of accusation that happens at the start of this disputation against the Lord. Now, in verse 16, we're introduced to a second group, a group who feared the Lord a group who feared the Lord. Instead of gathering and to complain and grumble and accuse God, we're told that this group who fears the Lord speaks to one another. Those who fear the Lord talk about God and they talk about his word. In so many ways, Deuteronomy chapter six is in the background of this passage, right? And those, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The godly talk about God and his word. And that seems to be what's happening here in verse 16. Those who feared the Lord are speaking with one another. Now, notice the amazing thing that happens here is God hears those who fear him and who talk together in the wise counsel of his word. The text says, look at what it says. He paid attention. He paid attention and heard them. You see, while the groaning complaints of accusers tends to ring the loudest, God pays attention to the quiet conversations of the faithful. You can get, this is a a secret if any of you are trying to become a social media influencer or something like that, uh, you you can get a great deal of attention by being an accuser of God, can't you? The loudest voice in the room tends to be the sharpest, doesn't it? The world gives the slanderer the microphone. It gives a trumpet to the complainer. All the while, the quiet conversations of the faithful are ignored by the world. Nobody's paying attention to them. But yet, the text says, God sees. He sees, right? He's he's paying attention. He hears them. This is encouraging, right? Because God is not distracted by the megaphone of accusations raised by his human critics. He turns his ear to the whisper of those who fear him. 
and your father who sees in secret will reward you, Jesus said. The Lord not only notices, though, those who talk about him in the quiet, but he remembers them as well. He not only pays attention to those who fear him, but the encouragement of the text is is that God remembers them. Their names are recorded, look at what the text says, in a book of remembrance. Now, what is this book? Well, it was common for kings in the ancient world to have books, written records that they would record of the deeds of their people, particularly their faithfulness. Their names would be logged in the official records of the court. In Esther 6, King Xerxes requested the the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Right, And if you know the story of Esther, it was in that book that the king learned about the faithfulness of Mordecai and that his lack of reward. <clears throat> so again, this was a common thing that happened in, in the ancient world is you kept books and records of what was happening so you could remember them. So throughout scripture, God uses the imagery of a recorded book to describe how he permanently remembers his people. This is an image used not only here in Malachi, in a lot of ways it's used all across the the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. In Exodus chapter 32, the Lord says, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. See, there's that language of the book again. It's referenced in Revelation, the end of the canon. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the Lord, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And it's referenced here in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. You see, the the book of remembrance guarantees that the Lord will not forget his people. He's not going to forget them. Notice that the names are recorded of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his his, his name. That those who fear the Lord may not prosper in this lifetime. They may not have much influence in the culture, and they may not be remembered by historians. But the Lord remembers. He remembers. Have you ever considered how quickly we forget about the past generations? Here's here's a pop quiz. You don't have to do it out loud, but think about it. Can you name the name of your great-great-grandfather? Think about it. Maybe you can. Maybe you've done some ancestry work. But I think for most of us, we're not even sure what that guy's name is. How far back in your family history can you go? And then ask yourself this question. If you don't remember your great-great-grandfather, who else is going to remember him? Will the world? Certainly not. You see, if the Lord tarries... Spoiler alert, you will one day die, right? You're going to die. Your loved ones will place you in a hole in the ground. And as decades turn into centuries, your grave will be long forgotten. The passing of time will slowly erode away your name on the gravestone. And some future generation will come and explore the old overgrown graveyard. And they'll struggle to make out, what does that name say on the stone? It's too weathered away. I can't tell. The world will scarcely know our names in our lifetime. It's a sobering but true reality that the memory of your life 
will be lost in the annals of human history. What is your life, James says? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Poof, gone. You see, yet every person, this is the good news of the passage, right? Every person who fears the Lord is remembered. They're remembered. God does not forget us. In his royal throne room, there are recorded in the Chronicles of Divine King our name if we fear the Lord. The world may forget our names, but those who esteem the Lord will be permanently recorded in his book of remembrance. The world forgets, but the Lord remembers. The world may overlook, but the Lord sees. The world despises, but the Lord treasures. You see, on the coming day of the Lord, we will belong to the Lord. We will belong to him. The text says we will be his treasured possession. God's children will not be lost to the dementia of human history. The Lord remembers his children. The language of treasured possession calls back to God's covenantal promises given to Israel in Exodus. Exodus 19 verse 5. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. You see here, God is reasserting time and time again, his covenantal love and faithfulness to his people. That those who fear him, those who honor his covenant, those who esteem his name, they will be the people who will be a treasured possession unto the Lord. We have to remind ourselves a sobering reality that this text raises, that it is those who fear the Lord who will be remembered in a saving way. The Lord does not forget the righteous or the wicked, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. His knowledge is not limited. But the Lord will bring salvation. He will know in an intimate saving way those who fear him, the text says. Those who esteem his name. In fact, the Lord in this text emphasizes the great distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You see, when it comes to the final judgment, this distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be permanent and it will be final. While Israel may wonder why the wicked prospers at any given moment, God affirms that he makes a distinction, and the realization of that distinction might be hidden right now, but it will be revealed at his coming. This is something we as a church affirm, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Let me read for you a section of our confession of faith on this matter. This is what we believe as Redemption Church. We believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked, that only those who are justified through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of God are truly righteous in his esteem, while all who continue in impenitence and unbelief are in his sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. So as Malachi says, if if there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, probably the most important question you need to ask this morning is, how does one become righteous? How does that happen? 
After all, if you know your Bible, go over to Romans 3, you know Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. You see, the answer to this most important question, how do I become righteous? The answer is Jesus, right? It is Jesus. It is by faith in Jesus that wicked sinners like you and me can become righteous. You see, the true fear of the God that, of God that Malachi talks about means that we recognize the beauty of God's holiness. We recognize our deserved condemnation. We recognize our dependency upon God alone for his undeserved grace. That's what we need. We can't earn God's righteousness. We have to confess that we are all born under the banner of the wicked, every one of us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Paul said. Yet the good news of the gospel is that while we deserve death, God, by his grace, gives life through Jesus. By faith in Christ, wicked sinners like us who fear the Lord in faith, we receive Jesus' righteousness credited to us. You see, Malachi points forward to the need and coming of Jesus. The Old Testament saints, they awaited in part for the promises of the God. They saw the shadow, but now that Jesus has come, the day has dawned and the light has come. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, and because of him, Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This is what we receive from Christ. The righteousness that you need, that I need, comes by Jesus. And so for those of us who have confessed our sin, who humble ourselves before the Lord, who take refuge by hiding in the wings of Christ, they will be safe and they will be remembered. In Christ Jesus, we are God's treasured possession. Not because we deserve it, but because we have been given by grace, God's righteousness in Christ. He loves us. He made us righteous in Jesus. He makes us distinct as those who have received his blessed joy. Notice he spares us as a son who serves him, the text says. But yet God spares us by not sparing his own beloved son. You see, God gave Christ up for us in death so that he might spare us as his treasured possession. Are you one who fears the Lord this morning? Have you responded to Jesus with faith? In response to Christ's mercy, are you living out your life to esteem the name of Jesus, that name that is indeed above every other name? Do you seek to, to live out of the righteousness of God that you have already been given by faith? You seek to serve the Lord with gladness and joy and thanksgiving. You see, if you're not a Christian today, I, I urge you humbly to make yourself low before the Lord, to come before him with great fear and recognize his glory, recognize his majesty, his wisdom, his mercy. And as you see his holiness, you will see your own sin, your own wretchedness, your own unworthiness. Like Isaiah, you will cry out, woe is me. But yet, in that moment of great desperation, the glory of Christ will be made known. And I pray that today the Lord might awaken your heart to not only see the wretchedness of your sin, 
but to see the all-sufficiency of God's grace given to you in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins today and trust in Jesus Christ. And may the Lord, because of your faith, because of Jesus, because he has made you one who fears him, may your name be recorded in that book of remembrance that will not be forgotten by the God who saves and redeems. So we've looked at the question. We've looked at the book. Thirdly, we're going to look at the sun. That's, I don't encourage you to do that in real life, but today we're going to look at the sun, right? The coming day of triumph and joy. As we move to Malachi 4, the Lord describes this coming day, which in the Old Testament is often described as the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It is a day heralded again and again by the prophets, and it points towards this climactic day in which God will bring a final judgment. And on this day of the Lord, the totality of God's judgment will come to its fruition, and it will be permanent. While Israel may wonder, right? They're wondering, God, why do you seem to let the wicked escape? They're getting away with it, God. God makes it clear that ultimately no one will escape. No one will escape. You see, an evil man may escape the courts of human justice. He can circumvent them. He could buy them off. Injustice happens all the time, right? But yet, no one can escape the justice of God. The distinction between the righteous and the wicked will become evident on the day of judgment. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the text says, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Look, and the language here is intense. The coming day will be like a burning oven. All the arrogant, all the evildoers will be reduced to stubble. That the heat of God's glorious judgment will burn them to ash, engulfing them in such a blaze that there will neither be root nor branch. The wicked will be permanently defeated and ruined, and there is no hope of them sprouting back up. The final judgment of the wicked is eternal. Malachi isn't suggesting complete annihilation, that they would cease to one day exist. Rather, that the image here communicates that their defeat is absolute and permanent. They're not coming back. They're not sprouting back up. You see, while the wicked will know the fury of God's wrath and judgment on that day, those who fear the Lord will experience joy and triumph. Joy and triumph. What good news this is for for God's people. Malachi describes the son of righteousness. All right, let's read this text together. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Look at the way this day is described. It's a day of joy. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The sun of righteousness will come and God will rejuvenate and restore and renew his people. And who is this rising sun over the horizon? Well, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised son of God. Malachi has already been placing the, the breadcrumbs of Christ throughout this minor prophet book. 
Malachi has already pointed towards a messenger who would prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And of course, we've talked about how this messenger preparing the way is a prophecy pointing towards the coming of John the Baptist. Now, if you know something about John's story in the New Testament, John's father was a guy named Zechariah. And you remember from Luke 1 that Zechariah doubted when the angel told him that his barren wife would become pregnant. Elizabeth would have a son, the angel said, and you will name him John. And Zechariah disbelieved, that can't happen. And so the Lord struck him with muteness. He couldn't speak for nine months. The dream of every pregnant wife, right? (laughs) And at John's birth, Zechariah's tongue was loosened. You remember the text says. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he began to prophesy. This is what he prophesies. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. You see, Zechariah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognized that his boy, John, would be the one who would prepare the way for the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. The sunrise is coming. The glow of glory is coming over the darkened horizon. The sun of righteousness will soon dawn. Church, take heart. Jesus is the light of the world. The Son of God is the Son of righteousness. As Jesus comes in glory, he comes with healing in his wings. He takes us up. He binds us up. He heals us who have been wounded so severely by this fallen world. And as we come to him by faith, we are forgiven. We are protected. We are secured in Jesus. And Jesus accomplishes all of this by his death and crucifixion. But the Christian hope hinges not merely on the death of Christ, but on the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is the risen king. And just as the sun rises from the east, so did the son of God rise from his grave. And he, the resurrected Christ, will have the final say. The son of righteousness, he will burn with intense heat to set ablaze his foes. But yet for those who fear Christ, they will bask in the radiance and warmth of his beauty. While the day of Christ will be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth for those set ablaze by the oven of his wrath, the day of Christ will be a day of triumph and joy for those who fear the Lord. With the wicked defeated and the reign of Christ established, we who fear the Lord, we are in Christ, we who have been saved by grace, will jump out like calves leaping from the stall, the text says. We will prance in triumphant joy with the ashes of the wicked underneath our feet and the glorious rays of righteousness above our head. And it will be a good day, an eternal day of glory. Christian, is your life marked by this joy. If you know the Lord, if you fear him, if you know what it means to be wicked and to be made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, to receive this by grace, is your life marked by this sort of joy? 
as Jesus' defeat over sin and has defeated sin, as he defeated death, his great victory, does it cause your heart to swell with gladness? That as you ponder the salvation that you have in Jesus, as you remind yourself of God's remembrance of you, as you remind yourself of the victory that you share because you are united to Christ by faith, does it cause you to prance and to dance with ecstatic, lively, and unhindered joy? Christian, may your life and mine look a little bit more like a leaping calf freed from its stall underneath victory's sun. May that look like our lives. As Christians, remember every sorrow, every doubt, every suffering that you experience in this life will be remedied by Christ's coming. The God of justice will exercise a final judgment. And those who fear the Lord, who receive Christ's righteousness by faith, will rejoice in that triumphant day. On that day, the Lord will act, and we will be filled with joyous praise. So why why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous seem to suffer? Why does God delay his final judgment? Why does he seem to, to be slow to us in our perspective? Sometimes we don't always have the answers to those questions on this side of heaven. God does tell us that one of the reasons why he delays in his judgment is to be kind. To be kind, granting opportunities for sinners like you and me to repent of our sins. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. You see, for those not in Christ, Malachi has raised a warning that you must respond to, that demands your response. The day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, the distinction will be evident. Will you be found among the righteous or will you be found among the wicked? You see, the righteousness, as I've tried to plead with you, we don't earn God's righteousness but we receive it as a gift by faith in Jesus Christ. They humble themselves and fear the Lord and call out in faith to Jesus for salvation. So in God's sovereignty and in his infinite and wise wisdom, if you are here today, I pray that you would hear a warning from God about your need for salvation. As the scriptures say, behold, now is the favorable time Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not delay. God has been kind in delaying his judgment to give you opportunity for repentance. So repent today. Repent today and put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For those of us who are in Christ, I think Malachi gives us a glorious promise and encouragement. Do not be discouraged, church. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. If you fear the Lord by faith in Christ, your name will be remembered. By grace, he has made you righteous by Jesus's blood. He has made you distinct as his righteous people, and he has set his holy love upon you. On that great day of the Lord, you will dance with joy in the sunrise. 
You will dance. Yes, even the Baptist, we will dance with joy in the sunrise as we consider our great salvation. Think about the Lord's mercy to you. Think about his kindness and his compassion as we consider his infinite wisdom given to us, as we consider the glory and beauty of the son of righteousness. May we never lose hope with each day. May we long with greater intensity. May we long for the day when we will bask in joyous triumph at the rising of the sun of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, as we worship you this morning, Lord, we are grateful for texts like Malachi 3 and 4. Lord, we confess that as we read Israel's questions, they're grumbling. Lord, so often it mirrors our own hearts. Lord, we raise that question. Is it, is it worthwhile to follow you, Lord? Is it worthwhile to fear you? Is it worthwhile to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow you? But Lord, it most assuredly is. Lord, though the wicked might prosper for a moment, eternity is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And Father, it is in him that we hope. We know that his day of coming will be like the dawning of the sun of righteousness. The wicked will be burned up like an oven. And the righteous will dance under the glory and glow of the Son of God. Father, I pray for those of us who fear the Lord, that we would find encouragement and hope even in dark moments that the joy of you, O Lord, would be in us because of the salvation we've received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that joy would not wither in present calamity and hardship, but would endure until the day comes when we are liberated, the stall is opened, and we can dance with joy like a calf before you. But Father, I do pray particularly for those here today who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see their great need for a Savior. Lord, we are all sinners. We are all undeserving of salvation. We are all undeserving of your righteousness. Lord, help them to see their great need. But Lord, I pray also that you would help them to see the great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that today they would be humbled and that they would call out in faith to Jesus Christ for salvation, that you would save them that you would record them in the book of your remembrance. And Lord, that they would join in with us in the day to come at the great return of our Lord Jesus Christ, where the joy will be unmatched and unrivaled. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. May he get all the praise and glory this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.